this morning, we are not turning to the book of Esther because we've finished that book and we're moving on. Which means that this week, while we listen to good sermon after good sermon after good sermon after, was that five? After good sermon, I was thinking, what are we going to preach next? And there were a few options bouncing around in my head. I thought, you know what would be a good book? Second Peter. But then, Brother Russell preached on it on Friday night. And I couldn't follow Brother Russell, so we couldn't do that. We turn in this morning to the book of Revelation. The book of the Revelation. And I have some hesitance this morning beginning this study because of all of the books in the Bible, the book of the Revelation might be the one that most people know. Now, sure, I think most people, saved or unsaved, can tell you what John 3.16 says, at least in the Bible Belt they can. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall have everlasting life. And most people can also tell you that the book of the Revelation tells us what comes at the end. But how many people could raise their hand and say, I know what the book of Revelation is all about? How many people could raise their hand and say, Well, I love the book of Revelation. I spend time reading it often. Unfortunately, the book of the Revelation has become a book that what I find in my personal experience, just an observation, it's the book that the crazies like to obsess about. And, and you know who I'm talking about. The people that come to you with their timetables and their charts and they, they, they tell you that they see the signs are coming and Christ is right before us and the end is near and everything else. And well, those people make me nervous. Do you know why? They too have missed the entire point of the book of Revelation. I want to set out this morning... As we begin to study this book, I, I do not have the intention of preaching all the way through the book of Revelation without any breaks. We will take some breaks. As a matter of fact, we'll probably get to chapter 3 or chapter 4 and, and have to take a pause for a moment. Brother John in the back is going to be frustrated because that's what every preacher does. They start Revelation, they get to chapter 3, and then they're done. We're going to keep going, but we're going to take a break in the middle. This morning, we're not really beginning the series that I want to go through through Revelation. Rather, we're just introducing what is this book because there are so many ideas, I believe, that we have to address them. And we kind of have to um, make sure that our mind is in the right place before we begin this study. There's no better place to start for that than the beginning. Chapter 1. So let us start there. Let us start in prayer. And ask that God would help us. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the Bible that has been given to us with the purpose that we would come to know you and understand you. God, that we would walk with you. God, I pray that you would help us this morning as we turn to your word. Help us to understand it. And help us to take application, Lord, that it would change the way that we walk with you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. If you would, turn in your Bibles there with me. I'd like to read the first eight verses. 
The Bible says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before this throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. This morning, I do want to preach from these first eight verses as we consider what this introduction is telling us and and even what it is uh, stirring us up to, to reflect on. Before we get there, though, I'm actually going to spend a little bit of time going out of order in my notes. I called an audible this morning and I said, decided there's a better way to present what we need to know. I want to look at the book of Revelation as a whole in the best sense that we possibly can. Because there are those that look at this book and if they're not obsessed about it in a weird way, they are afraid of it. Be honest with me this morning. Is there anyone here this morning when I say that we're going to the book of Revelation has a little bit of trepidation what we'll be discussing? Anyone? A few? A little bit? I've heard what this is contained in this book. There's seven seals. Four of them, mere God's wrath being poured. Seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out. Four horsemen. Seven trumpets. What is it all about? I want to contend with you this morning, loved ones, that the book of the Revelation is not intended that the church would be confused or even that we would be afraid of these things. As a matter of fact, just beginning... Look at how the book is introduced. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It is, first and foremost, a revelation. For those of you that keep insisting on saying revelations, make note there is no S at the end of the word. This is one single revelation. As a matter of fact, the word in Greek is what would the, closer to the word that we get our word apocalypse or apocalypse. That is the revelation, which literally means that it is the unveiling, the pulling back, the drawing back of a curtain. This is something that to the first century audience, first receiving this book, would not have scared them. Now we hear the word apocalypse and I think our mind jumps to Hollywood. 
and everything that Hollywood has told us about apocalypses and, and what would come from them. But this is, as a matter of fact, simply a literary genre that somebody with a Jewish background in the first century would have been familiar with. They would have read this and their mind would have gone to the books that they were already familiar with. Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. These books that already gave them some sort of understanding of things that were yet to come. Well, what then is this literary genre? What is Revelation? What is an apocalyptic writing when we talk about the Bible? Well, it's very simple. It's just a book that gives us a new perspective. Every other literary genre, whether that's poetry and wisdom, whether that's narrative, whether that is um, uh, any other type of genre that we could find in the Bible gives us a human's perspective of God's good grace in this life. Apocalyptic writing, the book of Revelation, last several chapters of Daniel, the first seven chapters of Zechariah, they give us a heavenly perspective of things that are taking place on earth. That is what makes them maybe so confounding when we look at them on the surface. Because we see these symbols, we see things that are difficult to describe, things that we have never seen with our own eyes described for us. Is it intended, though, for us to be confused or bewildered? No. We say it's a revelation. It's the curtain being drawn back. That tells us it's not meant to confuse us. Rather, it is to give us clarity. It is intended to give us understanding. It is intended to help us to understand. Revelation means to reveal or disclose, to pull the curtain back and to show. It adds clarity. It is written for the original audience with a particular tradition in mind. This word gives us understanding. It's using symbols from dreams and visions and all of these other things that help us understand heavenly perspectives. But these symbols are not without meaning. Loved ones, as we begin this study, can I simply give you one exhortation? Just ask you to do one thing for me. Please do not view the book of Revelation like a puzzle for you to figure out. It's not a puzzle. It's intended to be clear. In fact, the plain things are the main things that we need to focus on. The things that are less plain are the less important or less main things for us to focus on. It's intended to add clarity. This is our presupposition. This is our understanding of all of God's word. It's not given to us to confuse us, but to help us to understand. But we say there's still a problem. We still have these symbols. We, what do they all mean? What are the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and the horsemen and the colors and all these things? What is it? The symbols are already defined for us in the rest of the Bible. It's not a puzzle to figure out, but as we'll note, we look at the lampstands and we wonder what they mean. The lampstands are defined for us. I'll, I'll give you one example in the first chapter. Look at chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 20. Describing the seven stars, all of the symbols are given explanations. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
If we would simply be faithful to the Word of God, we can take this exhortation. We don't have to be brilliant to figure out what it all means because it's not a puzzle for us to solve. It's God's Word given to us that we would understand. Let me pause there for a second and just say that this is true with all of the Bible. This is true with every single written word that God has given us, every inspired word that He has given us. It is not given to us that we would be confused. It's not given to us that we would need to obtain some sort of seminary training in order to understand it. You don't need that. God has given you the Word. He's preserved the Word through time so that you could hold it in your hand, so that you could live in a time such as this where our, pretty much everyone's basically literate and can read for themselves because He wants you to read His Word. My concern is we neglect parts of the book that set our teeth on edge. We neglect the book of Revelation. I don't know why. I'm sure we all have opinions. But why is it that we neglect the book of the Revelation? Could it be that we simply do not understand why it was given? The book of the Revelation begins by identifying God's purpose in giving it. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, and here's the purpose, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Why was this book given to us? So that God's servants would be able to see the things that will soon take place. It's given to us because we need it. It's given to us because it reveals to us things that we need to know are coming. God used the, re- the, the revelation. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John that John would bear witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. That he would be able to bear testimony or witness to everything that he saw in this remarkable being taken away by the Spirit to see things that our minds can barely comprehend. That he would take this and he would bear witness to the people of God so that the servants of God, notice that word is plural, his servants in verse 1. That's describing not just John, not just the churches of the first century that were receiving this while they are of particular interest, but also to all people who would call themselves servants of God. You and I this morning, if we've been saved, we consider ourselves bought with a price that we are servants who belong to the one high king. Now, we find in verse 3, I think, something interesting. Something that if my exhortation to you a moment ago wasn't enough to encourage you to spend time reading the Word of God, and not just the parts that you like the most, not just the parts you understand easily, but the whole counsel of God, look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. While we might be tempted to run away from the things that are more difficult to understand than others, the Bible itself tells us that we are blessed by reading this 
book. I can think of no New Testament letter that begins with that introduction. Blessed is the one who reads this aloud. Blessed is the one who hears and keeps the commandments found in this book. I think that's a remarkable encouragement that should set, at the very least, our minds at ease as we begin to understand these great, haughty, magnificent visions that John was able to see. When we look at the book of Revelation, it's identified first as apocalyptic writing. Verse 3 also identifies it as prophecy. Again, identifying it with the tradition of the Old Testament prophets that the purpose of this book is to draw all of their vision to a climax. What else could we possibly say about this book? Well, let us not neglect who the author is. This book is of Jesus Christ. Back to verse 1. This revelation does not belong to John. It was given to John. It came from, it is of Jesus Christ. It is of God and not of man. It is made known that we would understand. There is a dual authorship, but notice that the human author is simply the instrument used by God. Verse 2 identifies that John bears witness to the Word of God. Verse 4 says that John more directly addresses the churches of Asia. Nonetheless, it is, his greeting is from the seven spirits of Jesus and from Jesus Christ. This book is not something for us to fear. Neither is any other part of the Bible that we might be challenged by. As a pastor, my greatest fear and perhaps my greatest concern for the church today, and not necessarily just our church, but my, my greatest concern for Christians is that there are those that neglect reading the Bible for themselves. You ask, why is that my concern? I want you to understand that when we neglect to read the Bible for ourselves, when we neglect the blessing that we have before us, it has an impact on the church. Because then, instead of being guided by absolute truth in the church, people are instead guided by ideas and concepts and things that they think that they know, but they actually have no basis for knowing. What do I mean by that? The things that they have been told. Well, it's good to be told things, but as we grow up, as we mature, we should be able to root the things that we know in the Word of God. If there is no root in the Word of God, we should allow ourselves to be challenged. When Christians neglect reading the Bible for themselves in a meaningful and faithful way, and I don't just mean in a dutiful way, but when we neglect reading the Bible for ourselves because we love God and because we want to spend time with Him, what ends up happening is instead of developing mature Christians that embody the love, the mercy, the goodness of Christ, instead we produce dogmatic legalists that hang on to a tradition. All of these things that ultimately give the church a bad testimony in our communities. All of these things that 
make the church come across as loving truth more than simply loving Christ. Loved ones, I want us to take to heart verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I'm afraid that in the time that we live in, that we are drawn to come up with our own explanations of why our truth is more important than someone else's truth. This is making ourselves too big. This would be looking at this book as if it were written by a human man. This book was written by God. If it's written by God, so too is the truth that I can proclaim. We do not need to be a people that promote our truth We need to be a people who promote the truth. The truth that God has given us. We do not need to be a people that say that I think this is right and I think that is wrong. We need to be a people that say, thus saith the Lord, that is wrong. Thus saith the Lord, that is right. We do not need to have ideas and fanciful conjurings of of what we think heaven might look like. We need to be a people so gripped by the Word of God that when we consider heaven, it is not shaped by Hollywood. It is not shaped by paintings and drawings and art. But it is shaped by the words that are found in the book. The only authority that there is in the church. This book has been given to the church. And and what breaks my heart about some of the fear that comes up when we mention the book of Revelation, what makes me concerned about some of the hesitance to actually read and study this book for ourselves, is that not only has this been written by God, given by God, and with the purpose to show us what is to come, but it has a purpose behind it. Why did God give this to the church that we might understand it? There are explicit purposes listed out in our eight verses this morning. Not only to show God's servants what soon must take place, soon meaning that this coming or that all of these things are imminent, that they could take place quickly at any moment. As a matter of fact, even while I am preaching, before we leave here, they may begin to unfurl. That we should live as if they are imminent. But verse 3 even tells us that when it does take place, when it does begin to unfurl, that it will take place quickly. There's also another purpose. Look down at verse 4. What is John's greeting to the churches that are in Asia? He says, grace to you and peace from him. This book is an extension of grace to God's servants. This book is an extension of peace from Jesus Christ to His church. Did you know that in the first century, of all of the letters passed around in circular form, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, Do you know what book was read more often than any other book in the first century? The book of the Revelation. Do you know what book the early churches spent more time meditating on? The book of the Revelation. Do you know why? 
Because found in this book is encouragement. Found in this book is an understanding from heaven's perspective of everything that is taking place in our world. We just finished going through the book of Esther, and and one of the major contentions or, or ideas that I presented to you was that the book of Esther teaches Christians how we can live in a world that does not belong to Christ, a world that is ran by governments. Can I tell you that the book of the Revelation does exactly the same thing? It gives us a heavenly perspective of all of the powers and all of the authorities that we see so that we would know where we are in the world and what we are to do as we live in the world and how we can contend and glorify Christ. And by the way, how we can glorify Christ, this is the third purpose that the book tells us it was written for. Verse 5, right in the middle, begins, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made a kingdom, priest, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion, forever. This is a doxology. Just looking at these first eight verses, uh, the ESV translates this into uh, four different paragraphs. And of course, the paragraphs aren't inspired, but there's main ideas that we can pull out of this. There is the introduction telling us what this book is and also giving us a blessing. John greets the churches in grace and in peace, and then God is praised. To him be glory. And all of these purposes work together to tell us what this book does because it teaches Christians how we can glorify God today. I know it's early on a Sunday morning. I need to see a little bit of enthusiasm when I ask this question. Do you want to glorify God with your life? Okay, one person said yes. I want to have to preach harder. (laughs) Do you want to glorify God with your life? Is there anything else that stands that, that we should be concerned with? Is there anything else that we should even consider? I would say no. The Baptist Catechism tells us what is the chief end of man, but the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Why do you exist? You exist to glorify God. God created you. He created you with the purpose that He would be glorified. He saved you. He saved you not for your own glory. We'll get to this in a little bit. He saved you for His glory because He is a glorious God. We take our eyes off of this and and we think for a moment that the reason that we exist is so that we can be good people who bear a good witness to God. The reality is there's not enough goodness in us that we will ever be a good testimony for God outside of Him. Because it is Him who loves us. Look look in the middle of verse 5 again. Look at this doxology of Jesus Christ. It is Him who loves us. Our salvation glorifies God because our salvation bears testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ loves us enough to save us. It bears His glory. It is Him that has freed us from sin. It is by His blood that we have been made a kingdom. By His blood. That you, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, are called priest. 
to his God and his Father. And because of all of these things, to him be glory. Notice it doesn't say when you've been saved. Brother Russell made a comment, and, and my preacher friends have been having fun with this. We've been calling each other saint uh, since Friday night. And it's true. Brother Russell wasn't wrong. If you've been saved, you can put saint in front of your name. So we've got St. James and St. Stuart and St. Lane and St. John and, and St. Other John. And you can call me St. Derek. It's kind of funny. I don't put that title in front of my name. Do you know why? Because I am not glorified in my salvation. I can be called a saint because Christ saved me, but I am not glorified in my salvation. You know who is glorified in me being saved? Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. Loved ones, as we read the book of the Revelation, we must watch ourselves that we would not fall into the trap of making charts of events for the end times from this one book. First of all, it just doesn't make sense because if you want to understand the last things, you have to understand the whole literary genre. You have to understand Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel, and Revelation. But first and foremost, that's not what the book of Revelation sets out to do. So let me help us with that. I've said that several times. Let me introduce what I believe the book of Revelation sets out to do. This morning, our goal is to introduce this book that we would understand it as we begin to study it. And, and so what does the book of Revelation set out to do? It gives us a new perspective. That's true. It gives us this heavenly angle. But there is a theme that continues to repeat itself time and time and time again as we read through this book. It is our encouragement. While we might be tempted to get lost in the seven bowls and the seven seals and the seven trumpets. What this book tells us is that all nations attempt to stand and glorify themselves. One of the major themes in the book of Revelation is this concept of Babylon. We might even call it an archetype of Babylon that exists in every single nation that wants to glorify themselves, that wants people to become loyal to themselves. This has been a problem throughout human history for a long time. It began in Genesis chapter 6 with the Tower of Babel. And God saw that man became wicked and haughty in their own eyes, and he dispersed them. It's been a problem for a long time. All nations in the world that we live in want to stand up for themselves. And God wants, being patient, He wants to see people become saved. He wants them to know Him. He wants a relationship with them. It's for this purpose that He created them. And so what does He do? Just think back to the book of Exodus. This is more familiar to us. What does He do to Pharaoh? He sends plagues, right? He sends plagues after plague after plague upon Pharaoh. And, and what do we learn from that? After the first plague, Pharaoh's heart was softened incrementally, right? And then the second plague, his heart was softened just a little bit more. And he started to get worn down until he was finally able to admit that God was God and that he was man and that he had to surrender to him. Isn't that what takes place in Exodus? It's, it's not what happens. That's not what happens in Exodus. Each plague that happens, each plague that comes upon Pharaoh hardens his heart. We look at 
these three sets of seven in the book of Revelation that, that take place, and what happens after each, we would compare them to the plagues. Do people repent? No, 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 no. The hardship embitters them. The hardship entrenches them in their rebellion against God. The second thing that we see repeated over and over again throughout this book is that John, in giving the, receiving these visions, would hear something. And he would turn around and he would see something different. This happens the first time as the seal, the, the scroll with seven seals comes before him. And he hears, who will be able to open the seals? John hears, it'll be the lion, the root of Jesse. And we get this marvelous idea from what he hears that there would be a power and triumphant military leader, that it would be all of these things that allude to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to open it. But when he turns around, what does he see? Does he see a lion? No. He sees a slain lamb. He sees a slain lamb. This happens again. As the scroll is finally opened up and it is unfurled before the people, what we find is the army of Christ getting ready to come upon the nations that have lived in rebellion against Him. We see the armies of Christ and there's a military census like that that we would find in Numbers or, or where there's this census where there's 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel numbering 144,000. This is what John hears. He hears the census, but when he turns around, what does he see? Does he see only Israelites? No. Again, he sees something different than that, what he, than that which he heard. Instead of seeing 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, he turns around and he sees people from all nations. The fulfillment of the very covenant given to Abraham that through him he would bless the entire world in Genesis 17, verse 4. So here is this theme. This turning on the head that reveals God's glory. It's an important question for us to consider as we begin this book. Because it tells us how we are going to conquer the world. Does that sound crazy yet? I'm talking about conquering the world. Have I thrown anyone off yet? I have the coolest job in the world. I get to teach people how they can come back to life after dying and conquer the world. The glory of Christ... And all that he has given us shows us how it is that we conquer. In these two visions, when John turns around and he sees something different than that which he had heard, what is revealed to us is not only that our mind must shift, but it shows us exactly how Christ conquers the world. The same glory that is present in verse 5 of our text this morning is present in the way that God conquers every single nation. 
He sacrifices himself. And it just turns out, loved ones, that if the church is going to be set ablaze, that we would have a public testimony before those members of our community that need to know Christ, it just so happens that if the church is going to know God in such a way that it affects the people around us, it will not be by plagues, it will not be by hate, it will not be by saying things that are rude or inconsiderate, but it will be by sacrificing ourselves for the community. 1 John 3.16 There is no greater love than this, than he that should be willing to lay down his life for his brother. What Christ has given to us as an example is what is the power of the church today. As a matter of fact, there is a song that recounts this glory and this majesty found in the book of Revelation. In one of the visions where John is in the throne room of God, he hears the song that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of His testimony. Let that sink into your heart this morning as you consider what role you play for Christ. Being a Christian is not a spectator sport. Being a Christian is a call to come and to participate and to serve. Being a Christian is sacrificing everything that exists in our life that it would go before God, recognizing that we are of His kingdom and that we are His priest that exists for His service, that His glory would be proclaimed through all the earth. Because when we get to the end of this book, when you get through everything that you weed through, because in reality there is only one thread of narrative in the book of Revelation. John is writing to people that he knows, to the seven churches to be found in Asia, the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, that these churches in the Asia Minor area might remain steadfast in their faith for God. This book is written to them. That standing in the first century, as people were coming up against them, as Emperor Nero was causing suffering upon Christians, that they would remain faithful because we are pressed with a choice. We are pressed with the choice either to be faithful to God or to compromise with the world. And there is no gradient between this. There are no degrees of faithfulness mixed in with different and varying degrees of compromise. If we are to be a people of God, we recognize ourselves as those that are described in verse 1 to be servants. Servants, not agents who have liberty to do things on our own, but servants who have been purchased with a price. So that in our salvation, we might be those described then as a kingdom, serving one glorious God, serving as priests, serving as those who do not glorify themselves, but glorify the one that they pay homage to out of reverence and fear to God, so that for him, his glory may be proclaimed. This thread moves. The reason the church should remain faithful rather than compromise is because in the end, 
as we move on to chapters 20 and 21 in this book, God's glory and dominion shall prevail forever and ever. There is no doubt about it. There will come a time when the earth shall flee away with the sky and that all the dead should be called together before the right throne of God, the white throne of God, and they shall be judged according to all of the deeds, everything that transpired on life. And we will all be guilty in that moment because our lives condemn us. But another book will be opened. It will be the book of the Lamb. And if our name is found in His book, we will not receive the judgment that we deserve because it had already been given to Him. Rather, we will be reunited with Him, that we would be found in Him, that as these things continue to transpire, we would see a new earth and a new heaven. We would see descending from this new heaven the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, with defined lengths, defined widths, and even a defined height. Figure out what that means that our glory would be before us. Why is it that the early church read the book of Revelation more than any other New Testament letter? Because they lived in a time when they needed to be reminded that they needed to be faithful. Now, it has been made something that it quite frankly is not. And it is not an issue of translation. It's not an issue of study. It is an issue of false prophets everywhere who want to come and destroy the testimony of God's church. Rather than simply studying God's Word and receiving a blessing from it, they want to make charts. They want to draw arrows and connections and look up all of these things so that we might understand what the end times look like. I can tell you what the end times look like, brothers and sisters. We're in it. The church has been in the end times ever since Christ ascended to heaven. The end times are now. You want to know what the end times will look like? Look around. I don't need a chart. I don't need a pictograph. I don't need fancy illustrations to describe that. You know what I need? I need to read the book of Revelation so that I can see why I should remain faithful through all of the things that I am seeing so that I know what I can hold on to so that my hope would not simply be wishful thinking that I like to talk about from time to time but that in every moment of every day and every hour when I wake up I consider how can I glorify God? Why would that be at the forefront of my mind? Why would that be my first thought as I walk into a supermarket or while I go to work or when I tie my shoes in the morning or when I'm trying to kick my son off of me so that I can tie my shoes in the morning? Why would I do all of these things? Because my mind is on this new Jerusalem coming out of the clouds. On a personal note, I'm becoming frustrated that our concept of heaven is more shaped by Hellenistic or Greek thinking than it is the Bible. Here we are 2,000 years after Christ died on a cross. Here we are probably some 3,000 years since the Greeks were no longer a major force in this world. Here we are in all of these things and still our concept of heaven and hell is shaped by Greek mythology more than Christian literature. I do not want you to be afraid of this book any more than you are afraid of any other book in the Bible. 
I want you to hold it in high regard and reverence and seal that as you read it, you believe that it is the spoken, breathed out word of God profitable for you. That it can cause you to grow in your walk with Christ. This is what I want for you. I want these repeated elements to be seen as the main things and the plain things that as we read this, we would see one thread encouraging us to faithfulness. I want us to have confidence in choosing faithfulness because we know the reward that is before us. Loved ones, we cannot neglect the book of Revelation. We cannot neglect it because without it, our entire understanding of God is incomplete. Without it, we cannot understand the church that He has given us. We cannot understand Christ. We cannot understand salvation that He has offered us. We cannot even begin to understand how it is that we might glorify God. The church needs to understand the book of Revelation, that God might be glorified, that God loving us, saving us, making us a nation, all point towards His own glory. Because it turns out that history repeats itself. It began in Genesis 6, continued on through different generations, and it's taking place in our day today. History repeats itself. Man thinks himself large. Empires rise and they demand attention and loyalty. God does not conquer empires with a sword. He does not conquer empires with wrath. He conquers it with love. How is it that God conquered the the spiritual forces that were at work, that held man in slavery and bondage of sin, that corrupted his covenant with Abraham into a legalistic system of worshiping God, that he gave himself to die on a cross. How is it that the empires and the someday when Christ returns will once again be put on their knees? Let us look no further than Revelation chapter 11, where we find the story of the two witnesses. And by the way, if you're wondering what the two witnesses are, and I know there's a lot of concern about this, they're described as lampstands, and chapter 1 tells us what the lampstand means. These are the churches. The church is the witness for Christ. And they will be killed in the public square. They will be destroyed and eviscerated by earthly kingdoms that again think themselves large. And in becoming the sacrifice, God will resurrect them. And the whole world will see and they will marvel and they will, they, will, they will repent finally. All the plagues won't cause nations to repent. You know what will? The self-sacrifice of Christ's love for His church. So I ask, how could we possibly apply this to our life? That we would remember what verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. 
in seeing Christ's love, the world will finally be able to see the way that they had persecuted Him, persecuted His church, made them to suffer. And they will <coughs> recognize that what is from Him is greater than anything that was ever within them. They will recognize for once that their preferences and their thoughts meant nothing. And they will look to Christ and they will see His love and they will wail because they will have known the evil and the wickedness behind them. But in that time, loved ones, I believe it will be too late. While they will surely know in that moment that they were wrong in their acts and in their deeds, perhaps their greatest judgment will be, will be being forced with the knowledge of how evil they really were. They will wail on account of Him. And even so, we say Amen. Why is it that we can say amen to that idea? Why is it that we can say that that is true? Because this book gives us a new perspective. Because this book gives us a new understanding from heaven at what God is doing. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So often we make the mistake of viewing the war between good and evil as some sort of chess match between God and Satan. This is not true. God has been in control since the beginning when He was the Alpha before everything and established everything. And He is in control even in the small, insignificant blip that took place in the 5th century when Esther became queen of the Persian Empire. And he is in control even in the Omega. When everything is finally set into its right order and the earth flees away and a new earth is brought forward for his creation. That we might walk in God's glory and his presence. That it might be all around us. As we look at this book... It is not just a mystery. It is not something just for us to figure out. But it is written to the seven churches of Asia. It is recorded and preserved through history for the church today. That we would recognize that we too have a choice. You have a choice as you live your life today. To be faithful to God or to compromise. That choice isn't going away. It gets e harder and harder to remain faithful, especially as we compromise a little and a little. When we go to work, and there is no difference in the way that we conduct ourselves between our colleagues that are not saved and us. That is compromise. For some of us, it has become so easy not to be a people of compromise that we neglect the reality that, that even in our comfortable lives that our zeal has been pushed out from us. That we are uncomfortable to express ourselves the way that God has called us to express ourselves. 
And what do we do in all of this? But we harden our hearts from the burdens that he would call us to, to the ministries and the places where we would be able to show Christ's sacrificial love in our communities. The real problem with the book of Revelation isn't just that it's a difficult read because it has imagery that we're unfamiliar with. The real problem with the book of Revelation is that we want to read it and make it something that it's not because we don't want to be faced with the reality that we too have become bored. Not stirred up. That we've fallen asleep. That there's a little bit of warmth in our spiritual life, but there's not a fervor. There's not a flame. There's not something that catches. There's not something that passes from one person to the next. What if we could just give up? All of the things that we thought we were supposed to be, and we quit worrying about all of the things that we thought other people thought about us. Brother Derek, I've got problems. I've got things I'm working through. Let God work through your problems. Let God be the one that is glorified in everything that you're going through. We tell people about our problems. Quit telling people about your problems. Then you know that 8 out of 10 people don't care? And the other two are glad that you've got them. God is able to take our problems and He is able to work through them in a way that is magnificent. When we don't allow them to be our excuse, when we don't allow them to hold us back, when we simply say that I am faithful to God because He is faithful to me, He takes those problems and while they remain a part of our testimony, He is able to work beyond them. And so, so what? If people look at you strange because you claim to be a Christian or because you walk in a particular way or because you pray for your meal or because you don't participate in the crude humor that takes place at the water cooler, you know what I say? God be glorified all the more. I pray that we would not be afraid of His Word. Rather, we would allow ourselves to be changed by it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we begin this study, that it would not just take place uh, this morning, Lord, but that it would be on our thoughts and our minds this week, that we would spend time looking at the book of Revelation, that we would spend time studying it, that we could spend time considering what it means and how it applies to our life, that it would be in our conversation as a church as we spend time together, as we see each other at restaurants and breakfast. God, that your word would be on our heart and that it would be something that we want to discuss. God, I pray that we would be a people who are excited to be in your word. And we ask, Lord, that as we begin this study, that you would be with us. Help us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we prepare to sing?